Today's scripture reading is from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 1 to 6. Again, that is 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 1 to 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you. You can open it to page 900. Please stand in reverence for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Uh, It's good to be here and share the word of God with you. Before I begin, I wanted to um, say, or actually introduce, we have a new intern serving uh, serving our church for the next six months, so Brian is here. Yes, Brian, he's in the back, and his wife, Phoebe, could you just stand for us, and let's welcome them. All right, welcome, Brian and Phoebe, to CGS. And I also am very happy to say, apparently, the heat is on now, so uh, my hands are like frozen last week. That's never happened before, so if I was preaching more with my hands, it's because it was frozen. I couldn't do anything else with them. But it seems like it's a little nicer now, so praise the Lord for that. And I'm very happy that so many of us are joining uh, online. And so uh, let's begin today with a prayer. Our God and Father, we ask you, imploring you, since all fullness of wisdom and light is found in you, to mercifully enlighten us by your Holy Spirit in the true understanding of your word and to give us grace to receive it in true fear and humility. May we be taught by your word to place our trust only in you and to serve and honor you as we should so that we may glorify your holy name in all our living and edify our neighbor by our good example, rendering to God the love and obedience which faithful servants owe their masters and children their parents, since it has pleased you to graciously receive us among the number of your servants and children. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Many of you wish that 2021 would be a start of a brand new year full of sunshine and teddy bears. And after what happened this past week, memes of asking if there was a return policy on the year of 2021 floated around the internet as if uh, it was purchased at a retail outlet or if they had some other option that they could go with, like option 2021B. What many of us should already know is that what we sow in 2020, we reap in 2021. We'll have to deal with it, sure, but how we deal with it seems to be what everyone is raging about. And this is where we get to today's topic as well. Pride before the fall isn't strictly a Christian phrase. However, it is a truthful phrase all over the Bible, 
And it's also truth that we see evident in the strands of history. Every great nation that thought they could not be toppled ever because of their military progress, their might, would eventually succumb to their pride, which would lead to their inevitable downfall. Many have said this about the United States of America. This country that we live in may be the most prosperous, the most powerful, and the most free nation that has ever existed. And you might ask, by what standard? The highest GDP? Yes, that's true. But I'd argue by almost every metric that you can think of. And this happens to be the longest-running democratic nation in history. Yet we see this nation getting closer and closer to the verge of collapse. Not by any foreign threat, mind you. What will kill us? Ingratitude. Bitterness. A thankless generation that is birthed out of pride. Napoleon Bonaparte is immortalized and known for his hubris when he led his armed forces it was 500,000 men against Russia, only to lose against them. But he lost 300,000 men because he was not prepared for the elements that winter would bring. And as I've said before, there are many examples in scriptures that we see that would warm, warn us from the perils of pride. The great king, Nebuchadnezzar, while walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon, would say, is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in his mouth, it says in Daniel, that a voice came down from heaven. Notice, notice the juxtaposition here. The king was standing, Nebuchadnezzar was standing in the highest platform in the world. This was the most powerful kingdom, arguably, in all of history, too. And he is standing on the roof of his palace, the highest place in the kingdom, metaphorically and maybe even physically. And yet, a voice comes from somewhere even higher. And the voice says that he would be driven from the kingdom, be made like a beast of the field where he will eat grass to show him who gives to man what he has, who gives you what you have. Immediately, he was thrown and driven from his kingdom and he ate, he ate the grass like an ox for he had lost the ability to reason like a man. Until, it says, his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers. That's about 20 inches, right? It's almost two feet. And his nails grew as long as eagle's talons or bird's talons. That's about two inches. So he was without reason eating grass like an ox, not just for a weekend like a vacation. It was a while. And when he got his senses back, he would turn and bless the Lord because he realized whose dominion is truly everlasting, whose kingdom is truly vast, and whose might is truly unstoppable. In the book of Esther, Haman, he was second in command to the king, Ahasuerus, who would come, Haman would come into the royal courts 
when the king would ask him what he should do for someone noble and someone that the king delights in. Haman in his mind, because he was the number two guy, he was the right-hand man of King Ahasuerus, could not even fathom that it could be anyone else other than himself. So he goes on to this elaborate detail about how this man should be honored by putting on him royal robes that the king wore, a seat on the royal horse that the king rides, and to top it off by putting a crown on this man's head, and that he should be sent out with messengers proclaiming, thus shall it be done to the man the king delights to honor. And the king's like, good idea. And immediately he goes, do this for Mordecai the Jew, who happens to be Haman's mortal enemy. Jesus tells his disciples that they will all fall away when he gets taken away from them. Then Peter gets up and says, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And we see that before the rooster crows that night, Peter vehemently denies his master three times. From what we have been reading so far, the Corinthians were headed toward a similar direction. Instead of using their gifts and liberties and freedom to serve others, they were using it to trample the weak, those whom they decided didn't deserve it by whatever standard. And Paul is explaining to them, this is not the Christian way. You have to be careful with your liberties. You can't just do whatever you want without incurring repercussions from your actions. Instead of serving, and the picture, the picture here is going low to serve others in lower circumstances. Instead of serving, they were lording over and taking advantage of others, even suing each other people that were brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul continues to write to the church in Corinth how we have to be careful with our freedoms. When we keep on asking the question, what can I get away with? We think, uh, we think that towing the line won't get us in any trouble. All the while, flirting with lusts, flirting with evil, and then eventually falling into sin. And so God reminds his people in the Bible. In Proverbs 16, 18, it says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 9, 29, 23 says, One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. And this will all be connected to today's passage. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. For is a conjunction, the word for here. It's a conjunction connecting this passage to what previously? It connects it to the verse previously. And that end verse that we read last week, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And so how does this connect with the previous passage? And what does it mean to be disqualified? And Paul is going to explain and answer those questions in this passage. 
In the Bible, when God calls out his people, out of bondage, out of oppression, he sets them free so that they can be free to communicate and live out the gospel. This is all, of course, tied in with how God wants us to worship him. But there is a danger. The danger we see here is what we call, what we see is that we can be disqualified. And this disqualification comes from sin. So the inevitable question that many people will ask is, so does this disqualification mean they lose their salvation? I'll say right now, it does not. It does not mean they lose their salvation. But it does mean that disqualification because of sin made them useless. And we'll also get into that. First of all, we should get this right. As it says in Romans 9, For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. Not all Israel is Israel. You know what that means? Not all churchgoers are part of the church. Not all who use Christianese are Christian. And this is what we need to understand. I'm going to take a quick side note to show us that Paul uses the word our fathers to the Corinthian church. The Corinthians were Gentiles, but because they were now engrafted into the body of Christ, they can even claim Abraham as their father. I said that one for our intern because of our conversation we had on Tuesday. Or was it Wednesday? You can tell your professor that. But so the Israelite history becomes our history as well. And so while some of the Israelites were saved and some weren't, the point is they all experienced the same cloud, walked through the same sea, they attended the same service. They heard the same message. They sang the same hymns. All is used five times in this passage and shows emphasis. All under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized. All ate. All drank. But they were disqualified. Why? Because they were unfaithful in their worship and service Thus, giving into sin, this disqualified, this disqualified them. As we go and learn more about church discipline, people are very scared, like, oh no, what's our church discipline going to look like? And I'm going to tell you what a clear example of what needs to be church discipline is if you do not participate in the faithful worship and service of God. This disqualified the Israelites. In verse 2 it says, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. This can be a little confusing. So what does Paul mean by baptized? Some have thought that this means that baptized, since baptizing and sea are put in the same line, this means the Baptists are probably correct, right? Because uh, baptism and walking through the sea means immersion, right? Or something like that. And then you would have the Presbyterians jump in and be like, hold on, buddy. And they would say, it says they all walk through the cloud. So that means in the cloud there must have been a sprinkling, right? So which is right, the Baptists or the Presbyterians? 
For the answer, you could look up our Dear Church podcast where I go much deeper into the issues surrounding baptism. But for this particular passage, neither one proves anything. First of all, we've all gone through Exodus together, and it clearly says that the Israelites, when the sea was parted, would cross the sea on dry ground. There was no contact with water as they crossed. Secondly, the cloud wasn't a rain cloud. It was a glory cloud. It didn't rain because of that cloud. In fact, that cloud would light up at night, and they would call it a pillar of fire. This is the cloud that would descend in the tabernacle when Moses went in. It's not a rain cloud. It was a glory cloud. But the baptism that this passage is referring to is baptism was into. That's the word. When we get baptized, we say that we are baptized by water and the Holy Spirit, but we are baptized into Christ. Being baptized into something signifies our change in identification. When we are baptized into Christ, it is a union that now states that we not only identify with Christ, but Christ as our Lord. We are baptized into the headship of Christ. This is deep. And Paul goes into it extensively in his epistles. Water baptism is the symbol of this union. As Christians, we are baptized into Christ as Lord. And as we are joined with him, through him, we are also joined with each other. And we see this instruction in Scripture, and it is exercised and confessed in our baptism ceremony. Moses, then, was an archetype of Jesus. By saying that the Israelites were baptized into Moses meant that they were now identified under his headship or leadership. The Jewish people have no qualms with this, if you ask them. So baptism is about identity, and being baptized into Moses meant that they were now under the leadership of Moses. And verse 3 says, And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. I'll stop there. This doesn't mean they ate non-physical food. They ate manna. By saying it was spiritual food, Paul isn't talking about its essence. It's t- he's talking about its origin. The essence of food was still physical, and I had joked about this, about how I would have imagined. They just ate manna throughout the desert, and they were completely fine. They were healthy. Imagine there was one food that you could eat, and it covered all your nutritional needs, right? It had, you know... 40% protein, whatever it was, right? 20 gram, uh, 20% carbs, whatever it is, right? And so imagine that was the case. That's what happened. That's what they were fed. The essence of the food was still physical. The origins were supernatural. And the same with spiritual drink. The drink was provided by God in the wilderness so that they didn't die of thirst. And I'll continue on verse 4. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them And the rock was Christ. What was the source of this spiritual drink? It was from the spiritual rock. And the rock was Christ. Even back then, 
Thousands of years before Christ was born, Christ was with his people as the rock. That's what this is showing us. To the Old Testament people, to the Hebrew people, to the Israelites, what does it mean to say that this was the rock? The rock was God. In Psalm 18, 2, it says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock. And here we see that the scriptures are showing us that this rock is Christ. Jesus Christ is God. Here the scriptures are showing us the pre-existence of Christ. Jesus is truly man. He was born. He had flesh. We celebrated on Christmas. But he is also truly God. Christ was the source of their spiritual drink. And here a little weird thing starts to go on here if, you, if you've read that. The spiritual rock that followed them. And we know that this is the rock that we saw in Exodus 17 when the people complained and the Lord told Moses to strike the rock and water will come out. But the Israelites had a legend, right? And this legend was apparently still being circulated in the time of Paul. And that there was this rolling rock that accompanied the Israelites for the 40 years. And because this rolling rock had followed them, anytime they needed water, they could then, you know, get it from this rock. That was the legend. And so some people ask, is Paul alluding to this legend? Perhaps, but he is not, he doesn't refer to it here. But what he does is show his readers that it was Christ who traveled with his people, continually giving them water to drink that is what paul is saying and i guess the image of a rolling rock may look like some kind of boulder to us but the word that paul uses isn't petros which we know is peter right the word that paul uses isn't petros for boulder or even pebble it's petra which means bedrock Bedrock is the foundational layer in the ground that you are standing on. Uh, <clears throat> if you've ever gone to like vacation in the islands or something like that, um, people go cliff diving, and so you jump off a big cliff into the waters below. And a friend of mine did that, uh, and she tried doing a flip in the air, but she couldn't complete the flip, so she landed... Uh, on the water on her side and the cliff was about 45 feet high and so she landed right on her side into the water and then we had to take her to the hospital but she was fine she just got a giant bruise up all on her side but when you when i told you this story and you pictured the cliff that she jumped off of that whole cliff is petra that's bedrock okay that whole thing that you see, that whole mass, is bedrock. This is not some boulder that's rolling around. It's Petra. <clears throat> it's this Petra that sustained the Israelites in the wilderness with spiritual drink. Our reformers will look at this like Calvin and others. They would see this passage and they would translate this and they would, I think they would translate this rightfully so that even back then, because they had spiritual food and drink, they would translate this into what we now know as Holy Communion. 
where we have seen the elements of the sacrament that the Israelites had too. But this is what Paul is saying. You Corinthians, you people in the church, see all the things that you're doing from Holy Communion, and we're going to get to that in the next chapter about how he talks about communion and how it's been defiled because of them. But he goes like, you Corinthians, you people in this church right now, the Gentile church, the church, you have all the things that we saw in the Bible. Our fathers, all the things that we saw happen to the Israelites, you also have the gifts, the provision, the blessing, the leading, the guidance, all of it. You in the church, you have it too. In Christ, you also have these same privileges. So how does this relate? How does this ha- what does it have to do with anything? And what's the point? That's when verse 5 hits you like a boulder, like a Petra, right? It hits you. It says, nevertheless, the word nevertheless is Allah in Greek, which is an emphatic but. It's like screaming out the word but, which might be inappropriate outside. But when you write it, it's an emphatic nevertheless. But with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And you can picture someone who would say Allah in Greek as nevertheless or but. But you can picture them really putting an emphasis. Maybe you can picture someone wagging their finger or whatever it is. But this is a very emphatic but. And with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Most doesn't mean 51%. Most doesn't mean majority. Like they, you know, he's like, I'll cut you like a little bit more than half. Most of them means this. Every single person except Two men, Joshua and Caleb. Outside of these two men and their families, everyone else, they were disqualified. Everyone else was disqualified. Overthrown isn't a word that means something like overthrown like we would use today. It doesn't mean like overthrown like a coup against the king. The king was overthrown by his ungrateful servants. That's not the overthrown here. Overthrown here is for the word strewn. And it means that the desert was littered with their bodies. They were strewn across the desert. Everyone died except for two, but everyone died. Remember who came out from Egypt when we did the study on Exodus? 600,000 military-aged men. That's 20 and up to where you can serve militarily. 600,000 men. This is where scholars have estimated around 3 million people back then would have been emancipated from Egypt. From 600,000 men, we see 599,998 were disqualified. And their corpses were strewn all over the desert. Again, does that mean that they weren't saved? I'm going to say, while it doesn't necessarily mean that, the point is they were called to live a life separated from sin, but they were disqualified. They were called to live a life of worship and service but they were disqualified. They complained, they griped, they abused each other like the Corinthians were doing, like many of the church today perhaps, 
All they do is complain about one another. They bicker and they fight. When we wonder why there are so little laborers, is it really any wonder when so many have disqualified themselves? They have fallen into temptation. In Corinth, the people just kept saying, liberty, 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 freedom, freedom, freedom. Not I mean, to me, it's not very different from the seagulls in Finding Nemo. They just keep on saying, mine. And by doing so, you just keep on saying that. Like, it it means something. But by doing so, you just did whatever you wanted, and you would fall right into sin. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Paul gives the Corinthians this example so that they won't lust after evil. That word desire is synonymous with lust. So they won't lust after evil as their fathers did in the desert. You see, when they were in the desert, and Numbers 11 records this, when they were in the desert, this is what they would say. Oh, that we would have meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. I couldn't help but to notice that the ingredients here make up a very Asian-like diet. But anyway, they would mention, no seriously, like leeks, but, um, but they would mention manna. This spirit, this supernatural, spiritual gift from heaven, they would mention it with contempt. And so they went on complaining and griping. God, then what happens is God would send up this wind, this massive wind, and an incredible amount of quail would just show up and land all around their camp. How much quail? It says, if you walked a day's journey on each side. That means if you take a walk right now and you took a full day to walk and then you ended that walk, that's how much quail was around that camp. That's a lot of quail, especially because I know a lot of you exercise. I know how much you can probably walk. You know, even if you walked, let's say, four miles per hour and you times it by a day's journey, you can see how many miles you would have walked. That's how much quail there was that God would whip up and put right next to them. But not just the length, but... The depth of it, how much quail, it also says that there was so much quail in that space that they were piled up on top of each other. Two cubits worth. One cubit is one and a half feet, so it's three feet high. That's more than the snow that we got this year so far, but that's how high the quail was stacked up. That's a lot of quail. So what did the people do? So imagine, you are here complaining, you're griping, you're like, Man, oh man, oh man, I hate this thing. I just want some food. I want some meat. I want some pizza. I want something good. I can't take this anymore. I'm going to go crazy. And then all of a sudden, you see quail up the wazoo, right? What would you do? What did the people do? They went nuts for it. They went nuts. They went around, it says, and they gathered at least 10 homers each. One homer is 220 liters, okay? Ten homers is gathering and, and gathering these quail and stuffing them in uh, maybe like 
14 barrels, you know those 42-gallon oil, oil barrels, those huge things? When you fill a barrel of oil uh, to the brim, it weighs around 300 pounds. These are hefty barrels. So if you can picture that, you would fill 14 barrels because you went crazy for quail, right? And it says, and it's recorded in the Bible, and while they were still stuffing their faces with quail, this is my paraphrasing. But while they were still, it says, while it was still in between their teeth, right? While they were still stuffing their faces with quail, it says God struck them down. And so they had to bury all those people in the wilderness. Watch out for people that complain in the church. Even if they get what they were complaining about, even if they get what they want, after all that complaining, don't join them. Instead, you should remember that with the crave comes the grave, right? I mean, it's just something you can tell your kids. And when they go, ah, I'm craving this, it's like with the crave comes the grave, kid. Anyway, but I don't know how well that will go for you. But this is what the Bible shows us. You know, we don't trust in God's provision. What does that mean? That means we set ourselves above God. It's God who's giving us this provision. And with the complaints and the bickering and the whining and the griping, what we are really doing is we are setting ourselves above God because this is what we're essentially saying. I know better than you. I know better than your provision. And I have a qualm against you. You're not doing your job, God. That's what it is. That's the pride before the fall. And this kind of undisciplined Christian life is what will disqualify you. This is not the heart of a true Christian. We have been called to be a gospel witness. Being baptized into Christ, we ought to humbly submit to his headship. It's when we trust and obey Christ that we see that we can truly be satisfied. You know, he talks about we're here to run this race to win and not to end up being disqualified and to go home in shame. And he's taking it very seriously because it is serious. Look what happened in the Bible. And here we are. We're asking questions like, well, does it mean that you're not saved? That's the same question as what can I really get away with? They're, they're the same question. Instead of what can I do to give my life as a living sacrifice for God? We are to run the race to win. We are called to be gospel witnesses to the world. If you're going to be a light, be a light. Stop wondering how dimly you can shine before you're not a light. If you're going to be a light, be a light. And to do that as a church, let us continue to follow Christ as he leads, trusting in his word that it teaches us what is true, asking the Holy Spirit to give us the strength to obey. Only then will we receive the price Christ has set for us. And again, I would remind you that this is what Christ showed us while he was here on this earth as he lived the perfect life and died the death we should have died. So that now we also, as he commands his disciples, take up our cross and follow him. This is the joyful path of the Christian. This is where we say there is no turning back. 
and we sing that with tears, but tears of joy because we know that we did not deserve this, but Christ, through Christ, we are now into his headship, meaning we will go where he goes. We will end up where he ends up. What an incredible privilege we have. And with what kind of joy should we respond in worship then? Let's be worshipers and people who are witnesses to the world of what it means to live out and preach the gospel. Let's pray.